welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I want to make a couple of introductory remarks before I start my my talk this morning. Um, Sometimes when you are doing a series and we're... We've been in this series, The People of God Transformed, for a few weeks now. Sometimes when you're doing the study, you come across some thoughts, some ideas, or you begin thinking uh, about a message that really you should have done at the start of the series. Now, more often than not, when I'm in that situation, I actually leave it and carry on with the series. But this morning, I'm going to do a message that I probably should have done, if not first, maybe second in the series, okay? So that's the first remark. This is going to seem, for those of you who are following through the series, kind of strangely out of place. Secondly, I have to say I'm incredibly hesitant about the talk, and I debated with myself right up to the last minute whether I should do it. There are several reasons for that hesitancy. One of them is that I think I run the risk of sounding like a grumpy old guy who's nostalgic about some era in his past that, truth be known, didn't exist anyway. The second thing that I'm hesitant about is that this talk is somewhat light on Scripture. Uh, It's almost more of a cultural commentary. Um, I justify myself by trying to think, at least anyway, that the talk comes out of what I hope is a very biblical worldview. So although there aren't larger passages of Scripture that we'll be unpacking and exploring this morning, um, it does come out of that milieu of, of a, as I say, a biblical worldview. So with those two comments, I want to begin by um, saying Charles Pinnock, who wrote a wonderful book on the Holy Spirit called The Flame of Love makes some really interesting comments that I want to use to sort of frame up the talk this morning. He observes that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it says humanity is created in the image and likeness of God, that most Western uh, commentators take those two words, image and likeness, pretty much as synonyms. So they would say they're two different words, but they essentially say the same thing. He notes that Eastern Orthodox tradition actually has discerned a difference between those two words, and they make a distinction between the created image and the acquired likeness. The first term, created image, speaks of a created given. The second, a potential future. So we are created in the image of God, but we're destined to be changed into the likeness of Christ. The goal of the transformation process for creatures made in God's image is actually to ultimately acquire the likeness of Christ empowered by a loving fellowship with God. So they would say the image is inherent, the likeness is acquired. And that's really, in a way, what this series is all about, growing into that likeness. And it's a dynamic and yet gradual process. Pinnock says in his book, it takes time for conversion to be made complete. It takes time for our baptismal initiation to work itself out in a holy life. 
And I, I think that's true from the Scriptures. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, in the RSV, it says, As newborn babes long for the spiritual milk, which is without guile, that ye may grow up into salvation. It's like there is this land called salvation. It's ours given to us. We've got to grow up into all its fullness. So conformity to Christ is the goal. It's the end point of our journey. That's God's primary purpose for us. Now, it struck me rather forcefully a week or so ago when I was talking to you that while we might be agreed on the end point, we are all agreed that we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, we may not think anywhere near as clearly and as unitedly about where we actually start from. When I was talking to you the other week about the darkness of our hearts and the capacity for self-deception, I noticed kind of some of the vague looks on some faces, and I wondered that some of you, especially perhaps those of you who are perhaps 50 years and younger, and I'll explain why that uh, age in a moment, you might well have been thinking, my goodness, he has such a dark and pessimistic view of humanity. I'm not sure that I share the dark way that he sees the human heart. I mean, granted, we all need transformation, but I don't know that people are as dark and as depraved as you seem to imagine them to be, Don. I think most people, myself included, are actually fairly decent. Damaged, yes. Depraved, well, that's a little bit over the top in my view. Because of the cultural currents that our society is awash in and has been for about the last five to six decades, it struck me that it may well be that while you and I are using actually the same language, we're using words like transformation and brokenness and so on, we may be thinking very differently about what they actually mean. Old Puritan believers would have said that transformation occurs from the beginning point of total depravity, all right? That, that as unsaved people, we are totally depraved. They would use words like vile, perverse, wretched. Today, we don't feel comfortable with language like that for the most part. The self-esteem movement that really has lasted five to six decades has taught us that our real problem is not so much that we're depraved as it is that we don't think clearly enough and well enough about ourselves. We actually need to think better of ourselves, not worse. I'm okay, you're okay was a well-known title of the movement's flagship book. In a group as large as this, we might be well using the same words we might talk about our brokenness and acknowledge the fact that we are flawed. But what is being said, actually, as you unpack that, can be quite different. One person can actually be referencing the wounds that they've suffered, but most certainly isn't talking about evil, evil resident within themselves. Another, however, might be saying, I've discovered that something in me is quite perverse. I, I was reading a book the other day, and one of the titles of the book gripped me, and it was, an, it, it was titled Radical Evil in the Soul, in the Human Soul. 
radical evil in the human soul. And I, I was thinking that m most people would wince at that. We might happily acknowledge that there are some people who are evil, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, Pol Pot. We would say they were radically evil, but ordinary folk like you and me, surely, surely that's a bit dark and pessimistic. As I say, the self-esteem movement would want to say that people's problem is that we don't think well enough about ourselves. Don't, don't tell me that there's something radically evil within me. Tell me I'm okay, you're okay. I, I find it fascinating, sobering, and a bit troublesome that I've been around long enough to say something like this. I remember a time when that chapter heading, radical evil in the human soul, wouldn't have been as jarring as it seems to people today. A time when, at least outwardly, people would acknowledge that title to, to, be, to be true. The moral ecology, and by that I mean the moral landscape, the, the contours of our culture, have undergone a huge shift in the last five to six decades. And we think very, very differently about the human condition today than we did, say, for example, in the 1950s when, when I was a child. Now, I hasten to add that not all of the changes that have taken place in that time are, are, are bad. This isn't some talk about the good old days. A lot that has changed really needed to be changed and has changed for the better in my view. I'm not looking back on the 1950s and my childhood as, as if it were some ideal era to which I would love to return. It had its dark side. There were a lot of men, my father included, who had returned from active service during World War II, and many of them come home emotionally scarred and sometimes completely dysfunctional. In many ways, it was an emotionally cold culture. Fathers particularly were often unable to express their love to their children or to their spouse. Many were disciplinarians of a very severe type. It was a more racist, more sexist, more anti-Semitic culture. It was bland and boring in many ways, monochromatic and homogeneous culture. In so many ways, life is better than it was then. So this isn't some romantic talk about the good old days. But cultural currents, and I see the self-esteem movement as part of a, a great cultural current, are born out of reaction. And the problem with reactionary movements is that they always create difficulties at the opposite end of the spectrum from which they are fleeing. So concerned with moving away from the ditch on one side of the road, they very often fall into the ditch on the other side of the road. They, what we say, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. Our culture has historically lurched between the powers of conservatism on one end and liberalism on the other. We, we go the conservative direction, fall in the ditch, then we jump out of the ditch, run to the liberal end and fall in the ditch on that side. One comic noted that conservatives are people who are enamored by present sins. Liberals want to invent a whole new set of sins. It really doesn't solve our problems because we find ourselves in sin at both ends. Tim Keller, who is um, 
a, a very sound, very smart Bible teacher. He's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. He speaks about the need for Christian communicators to have some understanding of the baseline cultural narratives that surround them if they're going to be effective. They have to have some kind of understanding of the cultural currents and the way people think. Now, the 1950s era drew from what I'm calling an older moral ecology, more deeply rooted in the Judeo-Christian traditions. I'm not saying that they were a more moral people, but they at least drew their understanding from that deep tradition. The 1950s baseline cultural narrative was the need to be a good person. And so the traditional gospel message went something along these lines. You know you need to be good, but you aren't. You've fallen short. God can forgive your sins and cleanse you and make you good with his goodness. And generally, that was a baseline cultural narrative that was language that really would have been understood in, in that setting. That's why, by the way, Billy Graham could talk so powerfully and effectively to that generation about guilt and about sin. People generally understood what he was saying. Were you to simply take Billy Graham's messages from the 50s and reproduce them in this postmodern era where there aren't the same baseline cultural narratives as we had in the 1950s, much of what he said in that time would be almost incomprehensible to today's audience. My, my parents were raised in a moral ecology that is sometimes referred to as the crooked timber tradition. The phrase, by the way, crooked timber, came from some lines written by Immanuel Kant, a very famous philosopher, and he said this, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. It was a tradition that drew from and was heavily influenced by the Christian idea of fallenness. Christian theology taught that man made in the image of God, fell through his disobedience, and was more than slightly damaged by that fall. The image of God inherent in creation was almost broken beyond recognition. So the words of Psalm 51 verse 6, man is shapen in iniquity and conceived in sin, would have been acknowledged and recognized. Now, you have to remember, this is a generation that had seen the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust. They were barely five years old. So you didn't have to talk to that generation and convince them that man was capable of great perversity. I grew up in the shadow of that time and of that thinking. And so the crooked timber tradition demanded of my generation a humility in the face of our obvious limitations and weaknesses. We were taught to be skeptical and to be suspicious of our desires. We were made aware of our weaknesses and our need to combat them. There was a very strong social sanction against blowing your own trumpet, or getting ahead of yourself or above yourself. And I can hear my dad telling me after some kind of sporting success, don't get too big for your britches, boy. We were taught to be understated and to be wary of those who weren't. That moral ecology has been dramatically altered. In my lifetime, 
I have seen a shift from the moral landscape rooted in the crooked timber tradition to one that Robert Beeler in his best-selling book, The Habits of the Heart, has called the era of the sovereign self. The self-esteem movement reacting to what it saw as the destructive elements of the crooked timber tradition, and there really were some destructive elements, convinced the majority of us that the real problem wasn't crooked timber and perversity within us, but it was that we didn't think well enough about ourselves. We didn't correctly think about ourselves. We weren't so much radically evil as we were the downtrodden victims of hurtful things that people had said about us and negative things that we had believed about ourselves. Now, as I said, the 1950s isn't some idealized era that I want to retreat to, okay? It, It did not have everything right. But I do suspect what has happened is that we've gone too far in the opposite direction. We now find ourselves in the ditch at the other end of the road. In the postmodern era, our era, we have largely lost even the ability to talk sensibly about sin or evil. Really, the only time you hear sin mentioned in our world is is when it's associated with an excess of calories in some kind of chocolate dessert. We have lost the ability even to talk sensibly about it. We have developed a medical model for dysfunction that has trumped the older moral one. Today, we are sick not sinful. Building on Freud, we have redefined sin as a pathology rather than as a perversity. Andrew Delbanco, who's a professor at Columbia University and has been named by Time as possibly America's best social critic, he began his best-selling book, The Death of Satan, by saying this. He's not a Christian as far as I'm aware, but he says this. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. The repertoire for evil has never been richer, yet never have our responses been so weak. I hasten to say, by the way, that I don't think this generation is any more evil than the 1950s or or actually any other generation. it's, It's not a matter of being more evil than any other generation. It's just that we've lost language to talk about it. This generation is essentially morally inarticulate when it comes to talking about sin. For five or six decades, the message of our culture has been, you are special. You deserve it. And of course, the holy trinity of personal development, trust yourself, believe in yourself, express yourself. Movies from Disney and Pixar are constantly telling our children how wonderful they are, and of course they are, and they need to be told. However, it also tells them whatever they feel is valid and should be treasured, valued, and pursued. Follow your dreams. Don't accept the limitations that other people put on you. ANZ's current slogan, your world, your way. Now, of course, there's a modicum of truth in all of these statements. Otherwise, we would reject them outright. But... I think with a view more rooted in the older crooked timber tradition, I would want to ask some questions and perhaps make some observations that in this cultural climate, nobody ever thinks of asking or making the observations. 
Let me, let me ask you, supposing the self that you're being encouraged to be true to and expressed is one actually capable of great evil, of betrayal, of lust, of anger, of fraud, of murder even, what then? Shouldn't that be disciplined, restrained, rejected, forsaken, rather than encouraged, expressed, and followed? Where does Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 fit into the pop slogans that tell us, follow your heart, follow your passions? It says this, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? By the way, the word deceitful there means crooked, twisted. This, that, that's a word that... And a, and, a, and a scripture that really does belong in the crooked timber tradition. What do we do with the exhortation to follow our hearts in the light of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 when he says, it's out of the heart that we vomit up evil arguments and murders and adulteries and fornications and theft, lies and cussing. That's what pollutes, Jesus said. He talks about the heart. So where does that fit with follow your heart? Ellen DeGeneres summed up our culture's thinking in a commencement address she gave in 2009 when she says, my advice is to be true to yourself and everything will be fine. Jesus' words, deny yourself, seem so jarringly countercultural in our present moral ecology. Edith Gilbert's book, I'm sure you haven't read it, you may have seen the movie Eat, Love, Pray. Hope you haven't. Not, not because it was a, you know, wicked or evil, it's just a waste of money. Um, <laughs> sorry. She says, God dwells within you as yourself exactly the way you are. Seems to me that God first made us in his image and now we've returned the favor. And she goes on and says, you are God and you create your own reality. Hear the echoes of ANZ's pop slogan, your world, your way. Which, of course, sounds great until reality breaks in, doesn't it? Sickness, divorce, redundancy, and a dozen and, other one, a dozen and one other things come along and puncture those shallow, inane pop slogans. Under the tide of powerful currents, we have moved in five or six short decades from a culture of at least outward self-effacement to one of self-congratulation and self-promotion. I was reading David Brooks' brilliant book called The Road to Character, and in it he tells this story, uh, which highlights really what I'm trying to say. <coughs> Excuse me. He said he was driving home one Sunday night and he was listening to one of his local radio programs. And on this particular station, on a Sunday night, what they did was they would draw out of their archives old uh, episodes that they'd played in years gone by and they kind of nostalgically played them again on, on the Sunday night program. And he said this particular evening they were playing a program or replaying a program that first aired the day after the war with Japan finished, the VJ Day, the, the next day after it. They played this program called The Command Performance. And Brooks said what he noted was a complete lack of chest thumping. He said the tone was modest and self-effacing. There was no 
strutting how great we are talk from any of the participants. He commented that the bumper sticker mentality of communicating our own awesomeness was completely absent from this program. He noted that their first instinct was to remind themselves that they weren't morally superior to anybody else. The collective impulse of everyone involved in the program was against pride and self-glorification. Brooks said that he was so transfixed by the tone that when he arrived home, he sat in the driveway and listened to the end of the program. It was just so unusual in terms of what he lived in the midst of. Finally, he said he went inside, turned on TV to watch some Sunday evening football. He said a quarterback threw a pass to a wide receiver who immediately got smashed by a defensive line player. And he said the defensive player did what all professional athletes seem to do these days in a moment of personal accomplishment, a self-puffing victory dance as the camera lingered. And he commented, it occurred to me that I had just witnessed more self-congratulation after a football tackle than I had seen and heard in the entire command performance after we had just won the war. In the present moral ecology, the way we think about ourselves has undergone a seismic shift. And in case you're worried or wondering, I don't think this is just the subjective anecdotal rambling of some old guy. The shift actually has been empirically verified. In the 1950s, the Gallup organization asked high school graduates if they considered themselves to be a very important person. 12% of them said they thought they were. You come forward, Six decades, 2005, 80% of the students answered in the affirmative. I think the self-esteem movement's done its job. We all think we're very important people. Psychologists have developed a test they call the narcissism test, and in it they have a series of statements that they ask uh, and, 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 they, and want people to respond to, included uh, statements like, I am extraordinary. Somebody should really write a biography about me. I like to be the center of attention, and so on and on it goes. The medium narcissism score has, ridden, has risen 30% in the last two decades. 93% of young people scored higher on, than the middle score tw of, of 20 years ago. Does this say something about our kids? Are they more wicked and more pride-filled? No, it's just that cultural currents have moved us. We're a different, we think differently. The use of public language is revealing in terms of monitoring cultural trends. Google engrams measure word usage in the media. It, it scans the contents of books and publications and it can go back decades so that you can type in a word and see its usage and frequency over the years. There has been a sharp increase in words that have individualistic tones. Phrases like self, personalized. Phrases like, I come first, I can do it myself. These words and the usage of them have gone off the charts. Conversely, there has been a sharp decline in phrases and words like community, share, common goal. The use of words like character, conscience, and virtue have virtually disappeared through the 20th and 21st centuries. I was interested that the word bravery has declined 66% over the course of the 
century. And I, this, I, I'm going to step on thin ice here, but even when bravery is used, it seems to me it's undergoing a radical redefinition. Here's the thin ice. A bravery award was given out several weeks ago. It's called the Arthur Ashe Courage Award. It's given out by ESPN, and it was recently given to Bruce, a.k.a. Caitlin Jenner, for making the decision to undergo a sex change. That same award last year was given to Michael Lamb, the first NFL player to publicly come out as gay. Now, I'm, that's not some kind of... Sh cheap shot against the LGBT agenda. I want you to put that aside, no matter what you think about it, the rightness or the wrongness. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what constitutes bravery, okay? In former times, a person was considered brave or heroic when they put their life on the line in order to save somebody else's. It was essentially other-directed. Now bravery has been, under the power of all these cultural currents, redefined, and it's now becoming more about me making a decision so that I can be a more authentic me. It's extending and expanding my goals, my desires, my wishes, my fulfillment, not for the sake of other people, but actually in spite of other people. It is now self-directed. And it gives you some idea of the power of these currents. In such a world, it's not surprising that words like gratitude have, have dropped off the Ingram scale, down 49%. I don't know whether you saw the article only a week or so ago, but today New Zealand schools are being forced to hire lawyers to defend themselves against lawsuits from offended parents who believe their child should have had the lead role in the school musical or be captain of the first 15. Not, not, this isn't American schools, this is here in New Zealand. You know what, I couldn't help when I read that but to hear my dad's voice. As I complained to him, Dad, I didn't get the lead role in the school musical. And it would have gone something like this. Boy, who on earth ever told you you could sing? Where did that thought come from? <laughs> you know, from what I've watched on TV, and I don't watch a lot of the reality shows like The X Factor and the ubiquitous American, Australian, New Zealand, Samoan, uh, Bolivian idols... But someone like my dad should have talked to some of those contestants. <laughs> it, it was obviously shocking and offensive for some of those contestants to have Simon Cowby, the first one to break the news to them that they were totally useless and should never sing another note again as long as they lived. I mean, you've seen them. You know, they are deeply offended because they think they're brilliant. I mean... Where was their dad? <laughs> Humility is down 52%. The fruit of the self-esteem movement has blossomed, flourished, borne fruit, and I think is rotting on the vine. And you know the thing is, we Christians are not immune from these cultural currents. I, I, again, I know I'm on thin ice here. I don't like... I don't like saying things from the pulpit about other people or other ministries or other movements. So, but many, many Christian 
presentations, both in terms of print and pulpit, are little more than the self-esteem movement dressed up. Whether it's Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking, or one of Robert Shuler's many books on how you can think better about yourself, or perhaps more latterly, Joel's, Joel Oosteen's Your Best You. And I'm not saying all of those things were wrong and these guys are false prophets. I'm, I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying you read that sort of stuff and you come away thinking I'm okay and you're okay. You need to think better about yourself because God thinks better about you. There's a modicum of truth in all that stuff, an, a, a, an ounce of scrap. But, but I, I think it's gone so far in that direction that we've lost our capacity to even talk and think about sin and to know actually where this process of transformation has to start in you and me. The self-esteem movement has taught that in each of us there's this golden figure in the core of self, an innately good, true self which can be trusted, consulted, gotten in touch with your inner feelings and your desires are like your inner oracle guiding you to your dream and to your best you. Where's the crooked timber tradition in this? Where is the heart is deceitfully wicked and, and, and desperately twisted above all things. Where, where does that fit in? The crooked timber tradition saw the inner self as a wilderness that needed to be conquered. The average postmodern tends to see it as an Eden that needs to be cultivated. Well, you say, Don, which is true? Are we basically good or are we bad to the bone? Is there more truth on one side than the other? As disciples of Jesus, the journey to transformation into Christ's likeness, I, I, we've got to come to terms biblically with the starting point. We're all agreed that the end point is, is Christ-likeness, but, but I, I think some of us think we've only got a few steps to go. Listen, I know that the crooked timber tradition, poorly applied, can end up pessimistic, harsh, destructive. I, I understand Catholic guilt. I, I know that some have viewed an escape from such traditions as liberation. That's the ditch on that side of the road. However, the self-esteem gospel, in my view, is naive and simplistic. It takes little account of our fallenness. It minimizes the sin and evil that we are capable of. It has an unrealistically high view of humanity. We are basically good, slightly damaged, yes, but evil and depraved, I think not. Listen, if you have an optimistic view of humanity, ultimately that will impact the view that you have on soteriology generally, on atonement specifically. Quite frankly, if the self-esteem gurus are correct, then we haven't been saved from that much, as it turns out. And perhaps I could say, slightly changing Jesus' words, he who is saved little loves little. I think we've been saved dramatically, drastically, and we are being saved, and I don't know whether your heart is like mine, but there are times when I see light and I see crooked timber, and I see the possibility of great perversity, and it's in his light that we see light, and, and uh, quite frankly, I don't know about you, but I see the transformation process as long, as arduous, as a choice that I have to make day by day, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but it isn't a few steps for me. If it's a few steps for you, great to be you, sucks to be me. 
C.S. Lewis had very little doubt about what side of the ledger he would have felt more comfortable on in this debate. He said this, one of the most dangerous errors instilled in us by the 19th century progressive optimism is the idea that civilization is automatically bound to increase and spread. The lesson of history is the opposite. Civilization is a rarity attained with great difficulty and easily lost. The normal state of humanity is barbarism, just as the normal surface of our planet is salt water. I think he opted for the crooked timber tradition and actually said the civilization that has been built is a result of people who have followed through that tradition and sought trans transformation. Will Durant, the philosopher and historian, made the same comment. He said, from barbarism to civilization requires a century. From civilization to barbarism needs but a day. Now, you might be thinking, Don, you're making me feel bad. I didn't come to church to be made to be feel bad. I, I, I didn't want to be told I'm crooked timber and that I'm a potential barbarian. I need a pick-me-up, not a put-me-down. I want to feel better about myself, and I want to be told that I've only got a few steps before me for the finish line. Please tell me I'm okay and you're okay. <laughs> well, biblically, I'm sorry, but I see something different. And as I say, I'm not hearkening back to the 50s. The 50s were as evil and the people were as bent and twisted as they are today. But one thing that we weren't, we weren't morally inarticulate. And we were taught to be suspicious of our desires and to be skeptical about our passions. And we were told there is the need to discipline those, to see those changed. That message is never spoken today. Matt was telling me the other day about a little statement <coughs> that Rob Bell makes about sermons. And he said, sermons, or they should be talks that start talks. Perhaps what I'm hoping to do today is really just start some talk stimulate some thinking. Where does my journey start? How does God see all of this? And I'll leave you with a couple of thoughts as, as, uh, to ponder and to mull over um, as, you, as, you think about <coughs> as you think about that. Could it be that Christian actually arrives at a far higher self-esteem by getting a much lower self-esteem? What? Could it be that it's only as we see and repent of being far worse than we imagined that we can be justified, adopted, and united into Christ and find that we're far more loved and accepted than we ever thought possible? I love what Tim Keller says. He says, as a Christian, you are far more flawed and sinful than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope all at the same moment. Perhaps we don't have to fall into the ditch on the crooked timber extreme or the ditch on the self-esteem extreme. Perhaps there can be a radical call from the middle of the road. Pascal, the Frenchman, said this, and I close with it. What sort of freak is man? Judge of all things, feeble earthworm. Repository of truth, sink of doubt and error. The glory and refuse of the universe. Man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that true religion must necessarily teach both. And I think that's just what I've tried to do this morning. Christian identity actually creates a profound humility 
and a self-respect. And self-respect is quite different from self-esteem. Sila. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.